Well, I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature. It's a series of podcasts on the financial sector and how it's going to come to terms with nature, because that's what I've been doing most of my life, is running around in, uh, in the green jungle. Well, I'm now in the financial jungle, and we're trying to figure out how the two things are connected. Well, I thought we'd start by having a think about COVID-19 and really what it means to the world. Uh, this is sort of framed as a health scare, a huge health crisis for the world. And of course it is. But the origins of COVID-19. Well, what I mean is that if you start looking at where this virus, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Where, where did this virus come from? How, how did it happen? How, how come, you know, almost 10 trillion of the global economy is now going to have to be deployed to fix this problem. That's almost an eighth of global GDP. It's absolutely massive. And it's come so quick. Before January this year, nobody really heard of COVID-19. But now it's on everyone's lips. Most of the world is in lockdown. The economy is grinding to a halt. Banks, lenders, insurers are desperately wondering how they can keep the world uh, running. and. Uh, but the problem I see is that um, we're looking at this the wrong way. We think this is a health problem, but actually it's a biodiversity problem. So what do I mean by a biodiversity problem? Well, let's have a look at where, where these viruses come from. Uh, what is a coronavirus? Uh, a coronavirus is uh, what biologists call a zoonosis. These are viruses that live in animal populations uh, quite harmlessly. They don't seem to affect the animal populations and they certainly don't affect humans. Uh, and they very, very rarely make a jump to humans. These zoonoses, uh, these pathogens get pretty nasty when they do. You've probably heard of Ebola, that's one. Leptospirosis is another. Uh, MERS was another. That was another kind of coronavirus uh, that jumped uh, from bats, uh, possibly through camels to humans. So um, where do these things normally exist? Well, you've probably heard in the news a lot about bats being the potential source of coronaviruses or, uh, or maybe even pangolins. And most people don't even know what a pangolin is. It's probably the first time you've ever heard the word pangolin. So how did the virus, uh, I think it's really interesting to have a look at, well, how, how, how are these two species involved, bats, pangolins, and what that really has done for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I've known pangolins there. They're, since I, I'm a biologist, so I spend a lot of time running around in, in forests and in Africa doing sort of conservation stuff. And you occasionally come across a pangolin if you're lucky in the forest. And what they are is a, an, it's an armor-plated animal, a bit like an armadillo. You've probably heard of an armadillo. And they, they sit around and they scrape into ants' nests and termites' nests. They have a very long, sticky tongue. And they scoop up all these ants. And of course, when you've got your head down inside a termite's nest, what's going to come and grab you? Uh, well, possibly a lion if you're on the African plains in the savannah, or a leopard, or even a tiger if you're in Asia's jungles. And pangolins are found all the way across. So uh, they're heavily armor-plated. They've also got prehensile tails so they can hang off branches. Now, that armor plating makes them uh, very useful if you want to transport a pangolin around the world because they curl up into a ball and you can stick 20 of them in a box and post it off uh, around the world. And that's, of course, exactly what illegal wildlife traders have been doing for almost the last 10 years. Well, 
what makes pangolins desirable is that the meat is exotic and special and in chinese wildlife markets it gets sold as something that's going to make you strong the scales which are the same thing as our nails at keratin uh, they get ground up and are made into are touted around as medicine uh, well of course the meat doesn't make you strong and the medicine doesn't work either but uh, the traders are very adept at selling this and as a result um, the pangolins are now the most heavily traded, uh, illegal, uh, illegally traded mammal in the whole world. There's a hundred thousand of them that have been traded into markets across uh, Africa and Asia, and most of those are going into Vietnam and China. Yeah, in these markets, um, you'd be amazed how much money uh, they get. I mean, the scales sometimes three thousand dollars a kilo. The meat is selling for about three hundred dollars a kilo. This is not a trade for the poor. This is a trade for the rich. But to understand how it's occurred, we need to look at what actually happened over the last 10 years or even 20 years. And of course, what's happened is that we've developed, first of all, population's gone up a lot. Secondly, we've had vast amounts of money going into agriculture to feed those people. And that has resulted in unsustainable agricultural practices and the rollback of forests, deforestation has occurred on a vast scale right around the world. We've lost half our forests since the last war. And uh, this has been happening uh, in the, both the savannas of East Africa, where the pangolins occur, and also particularly in Asia. Now, what happens when you get deforestation and people are moving into the forest, cutting down trees, is that uh, it's resulted, and uh, coupled with that, you get increasing prosperity in the cities, is you get a bushmeat trade. That means hunters that would normally have taken a few pangolins a year, they suddenly find there's a big market for them in town. So they start picking them up because they're cutting down the forest. And what you find is all these pangolins roaming around. So you pick them up and sell them. And uh, you find that uh, markets in Asia are, have become very partial to pangolins. You get high prices. So the trade, the illegal trade, blossomed over the last 10 years. But the ultimate cause has been this drive for deforestation. The financing going into unsustainable agriculture and other practices and overpopulation. These are the beginnings of what has turned into this time bomb that nature has detonated around the world. Well, to understand how pangolins evolved, we have to understand bats. Uh, bats contain coronaviruses, lots of them. And uh, if you go back a few years to 2002, you might recall uh, another disease called SARS, uh, which is a severe acute respiratory syndrome. Um, this escaped uh, from China in 2002, went around the world till about 2004. Around about 8,000 8, people uh, uh, were infected and quite a large number of people died, but nothing on the scale that we're seeing now. Uh, that was a coronavirus. In fact, there have been seven coronaviruses in the past. Um, and uh, today's coronavirus um, is just the most potent. So why is it so potent and where did it come from? Well, if you look into bats, you find they have coronaviruses which are pretty close uh, to the one in humans, about a 96% match, in particular with horseshoe bats. Horseshoe bats are found all over the world, uh, but in China, there's uh, quite a lot of them, and some of them ha have coronaviruses with a very good match to humans. Um, so you might think it's come directly from bats to humans. Well, how does that happen? Well, of course, they serve up bats and pangolins and snakes, koala bears, puppy dogs, anything you like to mention in these wildlife markets are all being sort of chopped up on the same slab. It's pretty gruesome. So when you get a hothouse of high densities of people, 
exotic animals that would normally never meet each other and a lot of blood around to mix things up. It's a perfect breeding ground for uh, viruses and mutations. So what's probably happened somehow, the bats have started to come into contact with the pangolins, the coronavirus in the bat possibly jumped through the pangolin into humans. And why do we think that? Well, the science has been going on at universities in you know, Princeton, for instance, uh, and Edinburgh and, uh, and in Australia. Academics have been teasing apart the genome of this virus, having a good look at it. And you can see many elements of the bat virus there, but there's something special about the one in the, uh, that's come through pangolins. It binds on to human cells very well. When a virus gets into humans, it's got to stick to our cells so it can insert its own ribonucleic acid, which is the uh, programming that it puts in our cells to make more viruses. To do that, it's got to stick onto the cell. And uh, do you remember those uh, rubber things you used to get at Christmas sometimes that you could throw at the fridge and it would slide down? Uh, well, it's a bit like that. If it didn't stick on the fridge, it couldn't begin the sliding down. It's the same thing with the virus. So these ones that are made in pangolins somehow have this very, very sticky sub, uh, substance that allows them to bind on best to the human cells. The bat one doesn't have it. So it's probably come from bats into pangolins and then into humans. And then something else needs to happen. Well, if you got into humans, that's one thing. But how do you start to become transmittable to other humans? So a further mutation needs to happen, whereby the virus reconstructs itself inside the human body so it can infect other humans. And you get this transmittable uh, phase as well. And we don't know whether that happened in the pangolin or whether it happened in humans, but it did happen. And uh, so now, uh, when you get these things all coming together in the right place, and in this case, it seems to be the Wuhan wildlife market, which uh, is incidentally somewhere that sells fish and animals. And the first indicators of the coronavirus, uh, this one, C19, which is actually the name of the disease, not the virus, uh, uh, was found in the wildlife section of this giant Wuhan. They are enormous, these markets. It's a giant wildlife market. It does fish, animals, everything you can imagine, meat. It, you would like any other market around the world. But what's different about these markets is that they have all these weird and terrible exotic animals that are imported often illegally, illegally under the counter. And it's this unique uh, sort of potpourri of conditions that has created the opportunity for the virus to occur and explode around the world. Well, there were some other things early on where uh, in the media, it was indeed the Chinese themselves said, oh, well, uh, you know, we know who's done this. It's uh, the American military. Now, why did they say that? Well, that was because a whole bunch of American military went over to China to take part in the world military games shortly before this virus broke out. So it was a kind of pushback by the Chinese saying, you know, where's the data? How do we know it wasn't the American military that brought it to China in the first place? Uh, where did the first one uh, where was the first case discovered? Then um, another thing that was uh, chatted about for a time was that it had somehow escaped from a lab. It was constructed by humans. And guess what? Wuhan, the center of the outbreak, has a globally renowned virology center where they do play around with viruses. And they have been looking at coronaviruses. So either on purpose or by mistake, couldn't it have escaped from the lab? So what does the science say? Well, when you, again, you tease apart the chemistry of the virus, it usually, you know, humans aren't really very good at manipulating viruses. Nature's much better. And so when we do it, we leave a bit of a, a whole lot of telltale chemical footprints. It's called a sort of uh, backbone in the virus. And, and you can see that. And uh, the scientists who've looked at this say, 
there's no evidence of a human backbone, a human constructed viral backbone in, in the current coronavirus. It, it, therefore, it looks like that nature has cooked this up all on its own. Well, the wider implications of all this, of course, uh, immediately we've got to deal with the outbreak as it's happening around the world. And we feel greatly for all the families who are suffering from this uh, terrible disease all around the world, the countries, the economies, all the people who are working so hard to deal with the fallout from this virus. But when all that is over, uh, organizations like the World Health Organization will be asking questions. Uh, how, how, how did this happen? Uh, what were the conditions that led to it? How can we prevent it in the future? And just in early April, uh, the World Health Organization received a letter signed by 250 organizations, including my own, uh, which called uh, for a worldwide uh, ban in wildlife markets, and particularly those that are uh, dealing in the kinds of conditions that I've been uh, telling you about. So. Uh, we'll wait and see how uh, the organization uh, reflects on that. Uh, certainly China has acted uh, 15 years too late, I would say, but at least they've done it this year uh, and have closed down their uh, wildlife markets. But for how long? Uh, these are embedded in the cultures of people in Asia, the use of these animals uh, in a wide variety of descriptions. So I think it's worth looking back and reframing this whole debate as about nature risk, because what this is, is a symptom of an underlying disease that's much bigger than coronavirus, and that is the degradation of life on Earth. Uh, at the moment, if you talk to people in the financial sector, who after all are financing this degradation through bank lending, through uh, the way in which our pension funds, your money and mine, are deployed into businesses that are causing the destruction of nature. Now, I've highlighted just a bit of agriculture and population, the degradation of forests, which has led to this crisis. But this is just one example of what's going on all around the world. There are lots more of these sort of things coming out. Zika, for instance, which came from South America. We've talked about Ebola in Africa. This is uh, evidence of nature creaking at the seams as we continue to degrade it, like a ship going across an ocean and worms are eating away at the timber. Sooner or later, they're going to break apart and the ship's going to sink. Well, we don't want that to happen. And if we don't want it to happen, then we've got to understand how to redesign business, how to redesign the global economy so that it maintains the Earth's immune system instead of degrading it. And we're doing the exact opposite at the moment, as we've seen with vast overfishing uh, in the oceans, vast uh, logging uh, and uh, degradation of forests around the world, the explosion of unsustainable industrial agriculture. Yeah, it feeds a lot of people, but at a big cost that's not included in the price of the food, which is the loss of biodiversity and the loss of the ecosystem services nature provides that underpins our economy. Now, what do we think the scale of that is? Uh, well, environmental crime lies at the heart of what we're seeing with the emergence of the coronavirus. Uh, um, Refinitiv, for instance, produced a good report last year based on uh, pulling together numbers on this and estimated it to be mm, somewhere between 15 and 25 billion a year directly in illegal trade. Uh, if you look at uh, a, a report produced by Europol, it was near 150 to 200 billion if you included illegal fishing and illegal logging. And in 2019, the World Bank produced a report which showed that if you include all the services that are lost when you degrade forests or degrade nature, then you're talking to somewhere between one and two trillion dollars uh, that is underpinning the global economy. Absolutely huge numbers uh, that are really important. So you, you pull that away 
you're, you're, you're pulling away the scaffolding that's holding up the whole of our economic system. So that's pretty important, isn't it? It's pretty important to your pension and mine. It's pretty important to the bank that you might be putting your money in because you don't know what they're doing with your money. So I guess we all need to think collectively as individuals, as businesses, you know, what does it take to make our money matter and not do harm to nature? Well, I, I work mainly with uh, the financial sector now uh, in thinking, well, how do we come to terms with these new and emerging risks? And uh, in recent years, there's been a huge amount of work on something called the TCFD, which is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. It was first put up by Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg. Mark Carney was the governor of the Bank of England, and Michael Bloomberg was the uh, founder of the company that has his name. Uh, the interesting thing about Bloomberg is that uh, almost three quarters of transactions in the financial world are conducted with information on Bloomberg terminals. So, um, but if you look inside these terminals, there's not much data on nature uh, and natural capital. It's all about financial capital. So what I believe is we somehow got to find a way of getting natural capital into a better state of equilibrium with financial capital. You can't have financial capital going up, up, up and natural capital going down, down, down. That doesn't make sense. So the way to do that is we need data, we need tools, and we need regulatory frameworks, we need disclosure and reporting, which includes nature, and to make our dependency on nature much more visible. Well, today, everybody is focusing on climate. Tomorrow, everyone's going to start focusing on nature. And you couldn't have a better example of why we should do that than the outbreak of COVID-19. Uh, you've been listening to Andrew Mitchell on Don't Mess With Nature. Join me next time to find out how we can design our equilibrium future.